Shalom and welcome everybody to the Unexpected Cosmology. <laughs> I am your host, Noel Joshua Hadley, uh, sounding clear hopefully at the moment, and class is in session. Now people often tell me, oh, you're that guy from the Unexpected Cosmology? Why, yes I am. My name is in fact Noel. I don't often go around branding my name, but now you know. Also, I'm well aware of the fact that it's a pagan name. Yes, the name Noel celebrates Nimrod's birthday. Bummer. But the good news is, my middle name is the e English equivalent to our Messiah, Yahusha. So at least my parents gave me something biblical to fall back upon in the instance that I should one day choose to disinherit my going ways, which I have. Now, believe it or not, guys, I already have another book ready for release on the printing press. This came as a total surprise to me, too. I had once again told myself that I was out of the book writing business. I always do this. And then lo and behold, rather unexpectedly, I had ample enough source material for another. It's called The Angel She Desired, by the way. Um, that's actually a quote in the Aramaic Targum, and it deals with Hava. Most know her as Adam's wife, Eve. You can probably take a wild guess at who the angel she desired was, as the subject is Serpent Seed. I do consider this my most original material and best book to date. A lot of stuff we've been covering here on Cosmology, you guys have heard me go over a lot of the material, such as my Sons of Seth and Sons of Elohim theory, as well as the Only Begotten Daughter of Elohim, and the material we're going over tonight are included in that read, and um, and it all, all forms a in rather intimate story. So I expect Sacred Word Publishing to have it available within the next few weeks. I know Zen's really excited about this. Uh, the hope, as always, is to introduce my research to new audiences. Tonight is going to be a continued and progressive conversation, going, of course, from what we've already been going over for over the last several weeks. The imaginative sort will easily be able to discern that we are indeed continuing our quote-unquote mud flood research, just not in the typical manner. When most people think about the mud flood, they envision old photos of partially buried buildings and sad-looking barbaric people walking the streets of mostly abandoned cities far exceeding their intellect. While all of this is most definitely true, I have been attempting to take what much of the community, the mud flood community, has been offering in terms of research and offering something biblical. So next week, y'all willing, I hope to talk about the breathians of the old world order. If some of you guys don't know what a breathian is, stick around next week and I'll explain it to you. Uh, so the old Yes. So what we... Uh, the old world order, or what we here highly suspect to be the millennial kingdom, and show what I believe to be pre-mud flood literature residue from the peaceful government, uh, possibly written by the resurrected saints. Uh, as you called a breatharian, uh, breatharian, or whatever, is what I believe is a resurrected saint. I said this is progressive, so tonight I'll be showing why I believe the resurrection of the dead has already happened, Right on schedule two, according to Second Ezra, Hosea, Adam and Eve, Ascension of Isaiah, Nicodemus, Bartholomew, and other books. For our opening prayer tonight, I'm not sure if I have anyone that's going to blow the shofar tonight. Um, if you do, that's great. Surprise me. But for our opening prayer tonight, I wanted to read a psalm. Some of us uh, attending tonight personally know Pamela Glasgow. As part of the Psalm Project, that's what she calls it, the Psalm Project, Pamela has been doing a phenomenal job converting the Psalms uh, into a literal translation. Uh, 
from Hebrew into English. We're premiering them each and every week on the Unexpected Cosmology. So tonight, I will be doing my best at pronouncing each of these words properly, and we'll be reading from Psalm 5. As you guys know, I have a California tongue, so I am terrible pronunciations. Uh, I will... That's why I'm a, I'm a writer, just so you know, but uh, not so much a public speaker, but we'll give this a try. This is from Psalm 5. And again, this was written or translated by our very own Pamela Glasgow. And uh, if you guys are on our Discord, um, you know, talks daily, you, you know who she is. Hearken to my words. Listen, O Ahia, self-existent, uh, eternal one. Consider diligently my murmuring, my whispered complaint. Incline your ears unto my voice, unto the sound of my cry. King and messenger, I will set my thoughts in order. I will array myself in battle gear. Doorkeeper, strong leader, keep watch for me. O Elohim, strong leader, towards you do I make supplication. Hear me, consider my meditations. Incline your attention. Mark well the cry, the sound of the woodwind, the song of my heart. For unto you, Malik Elohim, strong leader, I do pray, Yahuwah, when night ends and sunrise brings bright joy, grant my request. Hear with interest my voice as it breaks at the coming of daylight. Strong leader, you do not desire wickedness. You do not favor crimes against your moral law. Violence does not please you. You do not sojourn with the disagreeable. You do not inhabit the tents of the unkind. You do not dwell with the malignant and quarrelsome. The boastful ones shall not present themselves before your eye. You oppose all who practice systematic and habitual falsehood. Workers of vanity, sor uh, sowers of sorrow, shall not position themselves in your holy court. Destroyed be speakers of untruth. They vanish, those weavers of deceit. Liars perish. The man who sheds innocent blood, the treacherous, Yahuwah detest. As for me, in the abundance of your kindness, in the excellence of your favor, I come into your family. Your faithfulness multiplies. I shelter in your house, in the land of Ephraim, I bow down. Within your set-apart dwelling, before the presence, I reverence you, O Elohim. O Yahuwah, turn my eyes towards righteousness. As one outside, a weary traveler, guide me toward your tabernacle. Bestow upon me the inheritance of righteousness in order to reveal the purpose of my oppo opponent. On account of the insidious watchers, in front of seraphim and in the faces of cherubim, make straight my path, my journey, the course of my life. Their breath is not stable. Their mouth is not established. In due time, their work shall be revealed. In the house of man, their thoughts shall be made apparent. Their throats open into a chasm. Their tongue devours calamity and ruin. With breath, they scatter. With speech, they divide. With language, they plunder. Those strong who lead into chaos, who ensnare, devour, and offend, O Elohim, cast down these fallen ones by their own devices, and snare them with their own counsel. Let all rejoice and be glad that flee for protection, that seek refuge in Elohim. 
You lead them to the ancient house. You establish them fixed and movable for this time, further than one could see or perceive, to the edge of the horizon and beyond. Give a ringing cry, exult in praise, sing for joy, fenced about, shut in, and defended. They dwell triumphant in your house. They rejoice in your fame. You bestow gifts of righteousness, a rich inheritance upon those who guard your Torah. O Yahuwah, self-existent, eternal one, you surround the just with goodwill. You crown the faithful with favor as a barbed shield, as a buckler crafted of scaly dragonhide that guards with prickliness. And with piercing cold, you protect all those who wait on you. All right, so that was Psalm 5. That was our opening prayer type. That comes uh, directly from Pamela. She did a great job on that. So I just wanted to show that to you guys, and you could read all her work on the unexpected cosmology. With that, let us get started. I have... um, Now I have to find it now because I went off online. You saw me drop the PDF into the Discord channel, so you guys can follow along with me tonight. This is, I admit, a longer article. These have really been taken, being taken away from me recently. I've just been, you know, going insane writing this stuff. And I, I started really getting absorbed with this idea of, of reading about how Yahuwah the Most High was promising to Adam that he was going to be resurrecting him and he was coming just for him. And everybody else was a side effect. Like all the children of, of Adam, if they're resurrected, it's only because of the promise made to Adam. Like Adam was his true friend. And so I started researching this and pulling out scripture and I came up with this. And believe it or not, this is leading us into more mud flood research. I'm not going to talk about it tonight, but you have to use your imagination. It's there um, showing how, you know, the resurrection happened precisely uh, on schedule when it was supposed to happen. And um, in future weeks, I'll actually be showing multiple prophecies that that Enoch and Elijah were to show up 500 years after Messiah and that the Messianic kingdom was supposed to be brought in. And so that goes right in with our, our timeline with Enoch and everything else. Um, but anyways, just keep that all in the... Um, in, in the back of your mind as we go through this, that that literally we see paradise opening up here in this paper I'm going to be going over. And then we have like a 500 to 700 year window in the whereabouts when I believe that the millennial kingdom was brought in. And then, you know, eventually we get into the mud flood and all the rest. So this is called Adam's return to paradise. The, res- the resurrection already happened. And one more thing before I begin, I'm assuming you guys can all still hear me. Um, I have said in past weeks, if you guys knew me two or three years ago, I was a diehard soul sleeper. Like when you die, you're going in that ground and you're, you're going to sleep and you're not waking up until you hear the trumpet blast. But I've had to readjust a lot of that. I still believe that, but the, but it's already happened. Like Everything that I'm reading now, it appears that it really already happened. The people went to sleep, they died, they woke up, and they went on to paradise. And next week, I'm going to blow the socks off some people with what I'm going to be talking about next week. So, part one, only the prophets foresaw his coming. Satan didn't have the slightest idea Yahushua was the son of the Most High when he rallied the Yahudim together and crucified him on a tree. 
The accuser probably understood him to be a, a Hebrew prophet and therefore another threat to the establishment, or perhaps even a bit farmy, as the inte- intellectual wind goes, with one too many bats in the belfry. Certainly not the only begotten. Prove me wrong. But that's not what you came here for, is it? <laughs> you arrived to figure out how the resurrection of the dead could have possibly happened, and you have yet to hear anything about Adam. Well, this is a process. You can't very well slide into home plate unless you first rounded the other three bases. Already you should be asking how Messiah could possibly grow up from a babe on the breast without the prince of the power of the air receiving a single confirmed intel report on him. Well, I'll be making the case that the coming of Messiah was so hush-hush that hardly anyone in heaven even knew. And that includes many to most of Yahuwah's host of angels. We're talking a top-secret mission with the sort of clearance that only those who guarded his throne in the seventh heaven would know about. At what point his own entourage figured it out is difficult to tell. Hasatan, however, was completely blindsided until the very end. It says so right here. This is from the Ascension of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. And the Elohim of that world will stretch forth his hand against the sun, and they will crucify him on a tree, and will slay him not knowing who he is. And thus, his descent, as you will see, will be hidden even from the heavens, so that it will not be known who he is. That the Elohim of this world did not know who he was can only be explained by the fact that his arrival to earth was hidden even from the heavens. Not, e- not every heaven, though. The seventh heaven, which is the highest heaven, contains the throne of Yahuwah, as well as the Ruach HaKodesh. They knew. But so did the inhabitants of the sixth heaven. That's where knowledge of Yahusha's incarnation became zip-lipped, though. Isaiah describes Messiah's journey to earth with the following vision. This comes from the Ascension of Isaiah, chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. And so I saw my Adonai go forth from the seventh heaven into the sixth heaven. And the angel who conducted me from this world was with me and said unto me, Understand, Isaiah, and see the transformation and descent of Adonai will appear. And I saw, and when the angels saw him, thereupon those in the sixth heaven praised and lauded him, for he had not been transformed after the shape of the angels there. And they praised him, and I also praised with them. Pause. You see, Yahushua did not change his appearance in the sixth heaven. Therefore, everyone in the sixth heaven knew. They saw him arrive from the heaven above, the seventh heaven, and then observed him descend even lower still into the fifth heaven. Reading on. And I saw when he descended into the fifth heaven, that in the fifth heaven, he made himself like unto the form of the angels there. And they did not praise him nor worship him, for his form was like unto theirs. And then he descended into the fourth heaven and made himself unto the form of the angels there. And when they saw him, they did not praise or laud him, for his form was like unto their form. And again, I saw when he descended into the third heaven, and he made himself like unto the form of the angels in the third heaven. And those who kept the gate of the third heaven demanded the password, and Adonai gave it to them in order that he should not be recognized. And when they saw him, they did not praise or laud him, for his form was like unto their form. And again, this goes on and on. You can see here, so he goes to the second heaven and gives them the gate form. 
starting again in verse 27. And again, I saw when he descended into the first heaven, and there also he gave the password to those who kept the gate. And he made himself like unto the form of the angels who were on the left of the throne. And they neither praised nor lauded him, for his form was like unto the, their form. But as for me, no one asked me on account of the angel who conducted me. And again, he descended into the firmament where dwelt. This is really important. And again, he descended into the firmament where dwelleth the ruler of this world. And he gave the password to those on the left. And his form was like theirs. And they did not praise him there, but they were envying one another and fighting. For, they, for here there is power of evil and envying about trifles. And I saw when he descended and made himself like unto the angels of the air, and he was like one of them, and he gave no password, for one was plundering and doing violence to another. The Ascension of Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 through 30. In every level of heaven, aside from six and seven, that is, Yahushua lowered himself so as not to be recognized by its residents. To remain undercover, he even gave the gate code, probably something he never did before. Why would the Son of the Most High need one? Whenever Yahushua showed up, the angels undoubtedly let him through. No question asked. He probably couldn't go anywhere without a parade of trumpets. And besides, the divine beings who inhabit the ethereal realm just below the firmament were too busy plundering and doing violence one to another to notice. A little further on, we read in Isaiah, uh, Ascension of Isaiah chapter 11, And I saw in Nazareth he sucked the breast as a babe, and as is customary, in order that he might not be recognized. And when he had grown up, he worked great signs and wonders in the land of Yasharel and Jerusalem. And after this, the adversary envied him and roused the children of Yasharel against him, not knowing who he was. And they delivered him to the king and crucified him, and he descended to the angel of Sheol. So his incarnation as a babe actively exhibits how deep undercover Yahushua was actually willing to go. Apparently, nobody saw that coming. The fact that Yahushua was able to lower himself at each gate of heaven so as not to be recognized by the guardsmen just goes to show that the Elohim were expecting a conquering king. If the Yahudim expected the same, it's only because the qualities of a work environment begin from the top floor. Management di dictates the office policy, and Satan was dictating, you see. Perhaps their ultimate handicap has something to do with the proud heart being incapable of seeing the value in humility. That's why the prophets foresaw his coming and not the enemy. Had Yahushua fulfilled their expectations and arrived in glory, then one might argue that neither Satan nor the Yahudim would have formed a posse and hung him from a tree. Come to think of it, they would have defeated the very purpose of his coming. You'll see what I mean in a little while. His next coming is another story altogether, as it will prove Satan's final destruction. Imagine if they would have recognized him the first time around, though. An intel report stating that he had descended below the firmament would have ruined everything. Proof of his stealth can be found after his death and resurrection. Isaiah documents his ascension to heaven and glory as a matter of shock and awe. So the ascension of Isaiah chapter 11, 23 through 24 says, And I saw him, and he was in the firmament, but he had not changed himself into their form. And all the angels of the firmament and the Satans saw him, and they worshipped. And there was much sorrow there, while they said, How did our Adonai descend in our midst? And we perceived not the glory which has been upon him, which we, uh, which we see has been upon him from the sixth heaven. 
From this, we, we can deduce the following. Some people on earth figured it out, mainly the humble, that Yahusha was indeed the only begotten son of the Most High. Angelic beings in the ethereal realm, however, would have thought those people pretentious, hopeful romantics, delusional even. They would have especially thought Yahusha's claims to be the Messiah completely unfounded and puzzling for any prophet of Yehuda to make. Why? Because according to their own intel reports, the son of the Most High never made it past the goalie. Had Yahusha cruised through the gate, they would have seen him and known. Therefore, whomever this Yahusha person was in Galilee, he most certainly couldn't have possibly been the Yahusha from on high. It's not as though the name itself was uncommon. Something like 71 tombs have so far been uncovered with the name Yeshua Yahusha upon them, all dating from the same time period. You figure one out of 70 Yahushas might have a Messiah complex. You will tell me that Satan is an avid reader and that he knows the law better than anyone, including the prophecies of Messiah. This is true. You'd think that the Most High couldn't slip anything past Beelzebub. The Prince of Darkness would have just read the Ascension of Isaiah for himself and figured out that he should be looking out for a Messiah who latches onto the breast. But no, it apparently doesn't work like that. I've already said it, but I'll say it again. The prophets foresaw his coming because they were humble of heart. Pride is a blind spot. Despite his comprehension level, Isaiah prophesied that Satan would be befuddled by his visions. Satan didn't like that, obviously. It's why Satan had Isaiah murdered. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, On account of these visions, therefore, Beliar was wroth with Isaiah, and he dwelt in the heart of Manasseh, and he sawed him in sunder with a wooden saw. At this very moment, somebody else is gunning up to write me a letter claiming that the angels did know of Messiah's travels through the firmaments of heaven, seeing as how the angel Gabriel announced his arrival, and that it totally debunks my theory regarding a secret operation as prophesied by Isaiah. Well then, let's read the account of Gabriel's annunciation to see what it proves and disproves. This comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, 26-33. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from Elohim unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Yosef, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Miriam. And the angel came near unto her and said, Hail, you that are highly favored, Yah is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Miriam, for you have found favor with Elohim. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Yahusha. He shall be great, and shall be called the son of El Elyon. And Yahuwah Elohim shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Yaakov forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. All that really proves is that Gabriel was in the know. Why wouldn't Yahusha tell his closest and most trusted of angel friends? After all, the Messiah would need the secret service at his disposal. According to the book of Enoch, Gabriel was chosen to destroy Azazel and his confederacy of watchers in the last days. He's also described as one of the holy angels who was over paradise in the serpents and the cherubim. Really, if you need someone expeditious with wings and capable of brandishing a fiery sword at your disposal, then I couldn't think of anyone better for the job than the protector of Israel, of Yasharel. He was undoubtedly already pulling guard duty while Yahusha grew in her womb. But the shepherds, you say? Well, what of the shepherds? 
So what if the angels let him in on the news? Oh, I see. The mere fact that a host of angels knew about the birth of Mashiach once again disproves my theory, supposedly. Let's see what the scripture says on the matter. This comes from Luke again, chapter 2. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of Yah came upon them, and the glory of Yahuwah shone around about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. Fear unto you, for, I'm sorry, for unto you is born this day in the city of David the Savior, which is Yahuwah. Uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's actually a misprint there. It should be Yahusha, the, the Mashiach. And this shall be, actually, that might not be a misprint. They actually might say that in the Sefer. I'd have to look. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a uh, kuka. I think that's how you pronounce that, kuka. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising Elohim and saying, Glory to Elohim in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Elsewhere we read, And some shepherds also affirmed that they had seen angels singing a hymn at midnight, praising and blessing the Elohim of heaven and saying, There has been born the Savior of all, who is Hamashiach Yahuwah, in whom salvation shall be brought back to Yasharel, the infancy gospel of Matthew. All this really tells us is that Gabriel assembled his own team of untouchables. That's a movie reference. What I mean by it is that uh, the most trusted of angels were perfectly capable of keeping mum among potential heavenly corruption. Can all angels be trusted? Obviously not. But some can. And anyways, his band probably resided in the sixth heaven, every last one of them. Everyone in the sixth heaven knew about Mashiach's departure. Binding evil Ruach in the area would have been a simple task. And again, if reports were made among the Elohim that low-life shepherds were claiming Mashiach's birth, Intel would have once again related the fact that there were no records of his leaving the first five layers of heaven. After all, they were just shepherds. Why would the son of the Most High be found in an animal trough? That's unheard of. Pride goeth before the fall. Part 2. The temptation of Yahusha. Satan still didn't have a clue. You heard me the first time, but I'll say it again anyways, simply to avoid confusion. Clueless. Beelzebub was totally baffled, befuddled, bollocksed, bewildered, and all of the above as to who Yahushua was. That took a thesaurus, by the way. Teachers will tell you that the accuser was attempting to slap a blemish on Mashiach while questioning him in the wilderness. That's only partly true. In actuality, Satan was digging for information. Yahusha could very well have put on a firework display, and it wouldn't have been sin. A little later on, he transfigured himself for his disciples, didn't he? Not sin. A cloud of glory simply isn't why he came. His was a secretive mission, as we will see as this develops. A Trojan horse affair. Yahusha arrived to destroy the kingdom of darkness by ransacking Sheol and releasing its prisoners from within. Loose lips sink ships. Therefore, he chose sabotage without being dishonest. Satan's temptation in the wilderness can be found in the fourth chapter of Matthew and reads. So um, I'll read from the Hebrew gospel of Matthew here. Then Yeshua Mashiach was brought into the wilderness by Ruach HaKodesh in order to be tempted by Hasatan. And when he had afflicted himself 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Hasatan came unto him and said to him, 
If thou art the son of Eloah, say to these stones that they must turn into bread. Then he answered and said to him, It is written, Man will not live by the bread alone, but by the grace of Yahuwah. Now, the, the uh, Texas Receptus, which the Sefer uses, says, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahuwah. In response to Satan's first temptation, the answer which Yahusha gives differs between the Hebrew gospel and the Greek Texas Receptus. The Hebrew says grace, whereas the Greek says mouth. Which is it? It probably matters very little, as Yahushua is actually describing himself in both instances. He is the word of Yahuwah, as well as the sacrifice which would be accepted by Yahuwah's grace. To give you an example of how this works, we read in the Aramaic Targum. This comes from Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9 in the Targum. And he shall wash the inwards in his legs with water, and the priest shall offer the whole upon the altar of burnt offering and oblation to be accepted with grace before Yahuwah. My point being, Yahushua is describing himself to Hasatan, knowing that the accuser won't take the bait. Notice how Satan asks, if thou be the son of Elohim. The key word is if, a big fat if. Elsewhere, he has already heard the report, most likely emanating from the voice in heaven, who said at the moment of his baptism, this is my son. Hasatan's spies are always listening. As noted in my paper on uh, Yehuda and Tamar, which I haven't actually read for you guys yet, I believe that voice to be the same as the bath coal, which would signify that the Ruach HaKadosh is speaking. Yehusha's heavenly mother, but that's another topic altogether. Hasatan has either heard the claim in person or has gleaned the intel report in it and is like, wait, what? S uh, Satan doesn't want words. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3 was certainly adorable. The proof, however, is in the pudding, and he desires to witness action with his own eyes. All Mashiach's response has done is convince the angel of death that Yahushua believes he is the son of Elohim, but that he is also incapable of validating those claims. This leads us into the second temptation. So this comes from, oh, this is continuing in Matthew again. Then Hasatan brought him up to the holy city and set him on the height of the house of the sanctuary and said to him, If thou art the son of Eloha, Eloah, cast yourself downwards, for it is written, El commands his messengers that they take you in their hands so that you will not receive evil against yourself. Again, he answered him, It is written, you must not tempt your Elohim. For his next attempt, Hasatan quotes from Psalm 91, specifically verse 12. Why would he do that? Why would he quote from a passage in hopes of enticing the Son of Man to take the plunge? A clue is given to us in the actual psalm. So this is from Psalm 91, verses 10 through 13. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in, thy, in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. The tempter was probably far more concerned with the Mashiach's role in verse 13. You see, the one whose feet would not be dashed against the stone, thanks in part to the angels at his command, would be the same individual who tramples upon the adder and the dragon. That's a fulfillment to the prophecy given to Adam and Hava, 
Yahusha didn't jump. That's all the evidence that Hasatan needed. The defense rest. The son of Elohim would not be permitted to die. And in his thinking, Yahusha was clearly unwilling to try out for the part. If you're paying attention, though, Yahusha tells Hasatan of his winning hand without laying the cards down on the table. He says, you must not tempt your Elohim. And as anybody with the Ruach knows, Yahusha is Elohim. Contrarily, Hasatan only took that to mean he claimed to be Elohim, but wasn't willing to put his money where his mouth is. Again, in Hasatan's thinking, the son of Elohim was, co- was to come in glory. So this was his opportune moment. Take the plunge and arrive in glory. But Yahushua refused to give himself away. Had he done so, his entire mission would have lost the element of surprise. And now the third and final temptation. Then Hasatan brought him onto an exceeding high mountain, and Hasatan showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of this if you bow down to the earth and worship me. Then Yeshua said to him, Go away, Hasatan, for it is written, You must worship your Elohim, and him alone you must serve. Then Hasatan left him, and the messengers came and served him. The Hebrew Gospel of uh, Matthew chapter 4, 1-11. through Absolute proof that Hasatan no longer even considered Yahusha a contestant, let alone a threat to his kingdom of darkness, is the mere fact that he was willing to offer the man from Nazareth power, fame, and riches, whatever his heart desired. Sure, it was a temptation. Most men will exchange their eternal inheritance for a slice of the pie. Esau sold his for a bowl of soup. And just look at what Yahusha was offered. So much more. Nope. Hasatan didn't have a clue. The hustler was hustled. Also, it's a given by this point. The messengers who came and served were probably from the sixth or seventh heaven. I am convinced that the angel of death may have actually thought Yahusha delusional. Zealous and powerful, but delusional all the same, and was therefore even willing to work with him to advance his own kingdom of darkness. He's worked with far less. That is, until payment was due, and the angel demanded the soul of Yahusha in Sheol. Of course, that was Yahusha's plan all along. Part 3. The resurrection of the dead already happened. And now we get to it. We know that the resurrection of Mashiach already happened. But what if I told you the resurrection of the set-apart occurred at the same time? It's why Yahushua came in the first place, to release the children of Yasharel from their bondage, but mostly to uphold an age-old promise to his friend, Adam. Up until this point, I had totally neglected to make any mention of Adam, mostly, even though this paper is technically about him. Well, I still need a little more time. Be patient. We've nearly arrived. His absence from the stage is about to change. Because really, the phrase Savior takes on several meanings, and this is one of them. Yahushua came first and foremost for him. So this scripture passage is from Hosea chapter 13. O Yasharel, you have destroyed yourself, but in me is your help. I will be your king. Where is any other that may save you in all your cities? And your judges, of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is head. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. This is what I, right here is what I want you guys to see. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O Sheol, 
I will be your destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. Hosea 13, 9-14. Already we're off to a bad start, you'll tell me, as the selected passage doesn't say anything about Adam. That is true. Adam, as well as the Sethites, are conspicuously absent. It does give us some neat ambiance, though. I've just used the word neat, and I'm not apologizing for it. The context is Yashorel, specifically the tribe of Ephraim. The promise is given that the children of Yashorel will be delivered from Sheol. Nobody else, though. Therefore, only the children of Yashorel will be ransomed. That's a uh, ridiculous deductive argument to make, you'll say, as it never claims nobody else will be delivered. Also, you're here to tell me that you're not a child of Yashorel and that a goyim has just as good a chance as anyone. Oh, you aren't? I I know hopefully everyone here is, is, uh, is grafted in. Still a goyim, huh? You should become one, a child of Abraham, that is. The only way to do that is to cross over their thereby becoming a Hebrew. Best not to invest in the pagan nations. There's a reason why the tribe of Ephraim is being spoken about, and that is because the former Goyim receives his Hebrew membership in the house of Yashorel through Ephraim. Another process you may have heard about is being grafted in. That's a study for another time, though. For now, you'll just have to take my word for it, or do your own study. Only a child of Yashorel has so far been promised delivery. Just to be certain, let's keep looking for the salvation of the Goyim. This passage comes from Second Ezra chapter 2. The heathen shall envy you, but they shall be able to do nothing against you, says Yahuwah. My hand shall cover you so that your children shall not see Sheol. Be joyful, O mother, with your children, for I will deliver you, says Yahuwah. Remember your children that sleep, for I shall bring them out of the sides of the earth and show mercy unto them. For I am merciful, says Yahuwah, Sevaoth. Still not there. Heathen is just another word for goyim. It says they will be powerless. Powerless against what exactly? The context is once again death. Only the children of Yasharel who have now fallen asleep will be brought out from the sides of the earth. When that happens, the goyim can do nothing about it. Before you tell me it never says children of Yasharel, thereby debunking my claim, just know that I spared you from the entire chapter. The audience is Israel, Yasharel. See for yourself, Second uh, Ezra chapter two verses one through two. Thus saith Yahuwah, I brought these people out of bondage, and I gave them my commandments by men servants and pro- the prophets, whom they would not hear, but despise my counsel. The mother that bore them says unto them, Go your way, ye children, for I am a widow and forsaken. Sure, the people of the commandments that would be Israel are presently being cast out into the goyim. But that is because they will not be rescued from Sheol, as they have now become pagan. It takes becoming a child of Israel again to receive that promise. Fun fact, the mother being spoken of here is the Ruach HaKadosh, as we have already seen elsewhere. As um, I've pointed out, that only Israel are her children. Notice what else 2nd Ezra 2.29 claims. Your children shall not see Sheol. That's provocative. The promise is that a future generation will not be cast into the sides of the earth. Which generation is it, though? Future or past? Well, I'm here to tell you that we are the people of that promise. The story of the resurrected saints is told to us in only one canonical gospel, and in the most provocative way imaginable. 
Matthew records the event in a single solitary sentence. It reads, And behold, the sanctuary was broken from two sides, upwards and downwards, and the earth shook. And the stones were divided through the middle, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the Holy ones stood up and lived. They went out of the graves. After the resurrection, many appeared. The Hebrew Gospel, Matthew 27, 51-53. So, what the, huh? <laughs> Nobody walks into a dojo, drops a challenge, and then leaves. And yet, that is precisely what Matthew has managed to do. Why would Matthew even write something like that without any further explanation? He even says many of them appeared afterwards. Appeared to whom exactly? Other people? You figure an event like that, um, and somebody else would find it monumental enough to take a pen to paper in hopes of informing the world, which is why I'm suggesting Matthew only speaks about the events in passing, because somebody else had in fact already interviewed the resurrected to everyone's satisfaction, and Matthew is simply directing our attention to that source material. What is that source material, you ask? Perhaps it's this. This comes from the Gospel of Nicodemus. Now, if you guys were here with me two weeks ago, we actually read this whole Gospel. This is chapter 12, verses 13 through 19. Then Yosef, rising up, said to Annas and Caiaphas, Ye may be justly under a great surprise that you have been told that Yahushua is alive and gone up to heaven. It is indeed a thing really surprising that he should not only himself arise from the dead, but also raise others from their graves who have been seen by many in Jerusalem. And now hear me a little. We all knew the blessed Simeon, the high priest, who took Yehusha with an infant into his arms in the temple. This same Simeon had two sons of his own, and were all present at, and we were all present at their death and funeral. Go therefore and see their tombs, for these are open, and they are risen. And behold, they are in the city of um, Arimathea, spending their time together in offices of, of devotion. And this is what I want you to pay attention to right here. Some indeed have heard the sound of their voices in prayer, but they will not discourse with anyone, but they continue as mute as dead men. But come, let us go to them and behave ourselves towards them with all due respect and caution. And if we can bring them to swear, perhaps they will tell us some of the mysteries of their resurrection. So, the two sons of Simeon were among the resurrected, according to the Gospel of Nicodemus. But that's not nearly the whole of it. You see, if Simeon's two sons had already died, their names were uh, Cherinus and Lynthius, by the way, it also means they had tenured in Sheol for a spiel. Uh, Cherinus and Lynthius had seen stuff. What did they see exactly? The mysteries of the resurrection, of course, duh. They were there for the whole thing, including Yahushua's hustling of the hustler. We'll get to that briefly because one of Yahushua's 12 disciples, Nathaniel, he saw stuff too. What he witnessed relates to the topic at hand, the testimony of the resurrected. It's why I've thought to bring it up. Are you really surprised though? The disciple Yohanan told us he would. This comes from the Hebrew Gospel of John chapter 1. Yeshua Mashiach saw uh, Nathanael, who came there and said, Whom do you think that truth is from? Man of Yashorel, who is without any deception? Nathanael said to him, How do you recognize me? Yeshua answered and said to him, Before Philip had called you, I saw you under the fig tree. 
Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the son of Eloha. You are the king of Yasharel. That's strange how twice is double wiser. <laughs> Yeshua answered and said to him, are you able to believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And he said to them, pay attention to this. In truth, I say to the in truth, I say to you that you will see the heavens opened and the messengers of Elohim ascending and descending because of the Son of Man. Where in the Gospels do we read of Nathanael actually seeing the heavens opened and the messengers of Elohim ascending and descending because of the Son of Man? Comb your Bibles. Read the epistles if you please. Take as long as you need. It's not there. Kind of strange that Johannes would tease us without ever filling in the details. That is, unless Nathanael Nathaniel's vision could already be read elsewhere, and Johannan were directing us to that fact. Kind of like the resurrection quip in Matthew. Well, I'm here to tell you that questions of Bartholomew fills in those other details. The only fulfillment of Yahushua's prophecy that I have so far found can be found read right here in the Gospel of Barnabas. Uh, I'm sorry, Gospel of Bartholomew. That's a misprint there. I need to change that. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. And Bartholomew said, Adonai, when thou wentest to be hanged upon the cross, I followed thee afar off and saw thee hung upon the cross, and the angels coming down from heaven and worshiping thee. There it is. And, there, and when there came darkness, I beheld and I saw that thou were vanished away from the cross, and I heard only a voice in the parts under the earth, and great wailing and gnashing of teeth on a sudden. Tell me, Adonai, whither thou went from the cross. As we shall see in a moment, these are the angels from either the sixth or seventh heaven, as nobody else was yet in the know. Not even Satan had figured it out by this point. Remember, Yahushua told Nathanael that he would see the angels ascending and descending because of the Son of Man. What better occasion than when he was hung upon the tree? At one time or another, questions of Bartholomew was extremely popular. I could care less if the church fathers rejected it. Rome may, have in, Rome may indeed have the first word on the matter, and certainly the loudest opinion, but they are a far cry from having the last. Many modern scholars deny Nathaniel and Bartholomew as being the same person, but I'm not interested in playing that game here. In Hebrew, Bartholomew would have been pronounced bar Talmai. If I'm not mistaken, that's a surname. Bar Talmai simply means son of Talmai. What that means is Bartholomew had a first name, Nathaniel, son of Talmai. They're the same person. You will tell me that you looked up your favorite gatekeeper on the internet, and he says questions of Bartholomew is a Gnostic text. Oh, is it? He says it's Gnostic because Yahushua gave Bartholomew hidden knowledge without thinking to let the rest of humanity in on it. Never mind the fact that Bartholomew wrote it down into a book. Yahushua kept all sorts of secrets. Even the Gospels record that, that he withheld the mysteries of the kingdom from the Yahudim when speaking in parables. Matthew 13, 10-17. He gave the explanation to his disciples in secret. Uh-oh. By the same definition, that makes Yahushua a Gnostic in the Gospels too. Ridiculous. As we uh, know by now... Mashiach had a good reason for confounding the proud of heart. Not wanting to cast pearl before swine is only the beginning of it. He intended to turn their own weapon against them. And anyways, further detail of Nathaniel's, Nathaniel's vision can be read in the following verses. Again, Bartholomew said, Adonai, I saw the angels 
hastily upon thee only. And all the angels besought him that he would go up with them, but he would not. But when thou didst command him to go up, I behold a flame of fire issuing out of his hands and going even unto the city of Jerusalem. And Yahushua said unto him, Blessed art thou, Bartholomew, my beloved, because thou hast seen these mysteries. This was one of the angels of vengeance, which stand before my father's throne. And this angel sent he unto me. And for this cause he would not ascend up, because he desired to destroy all the powers of the world. But when I commanded him to ascend up, there went a flame out of his hand and rent asunder the veil of the temple and parted it in two pieces for a witness unto the children of Israel for my passion because they crucified me. There he is again, Adam. I'll have you know, I skipped a passage in Bartholomew on purpose, wherein we read the location which Yahushua vanished to and why. And that is because we're still on the topic of the angels in the know versus those who weren't rather than Adam. We read right here that the destroying angel who rents asunder the veil of the temple stands before Yahuwah's throne. Yahushua doesn't tell us what level of heaven that is, but he needn't have to. The angels of vengeance reside in the seventh heaven, where the throne is, so as to keep the enemy on their toes. Can't let them know beforehand when vengeance is afoot. From everything I've so far been able to ascertain, the first divine being to figure it out wasn't Satan, but the prince of Sheol. Nathaniel witnessed the angels descending and ascending, but his vision also involved Yahushua vanishing away from the cross under the cover of darkness and the resulting sound of a voice beneath the earth. So this comes from the same gospel, Bartholomew chapter 1. And Yahushua answered and said, Blessed art thou, Bartholomew, my beloved, because thou sawest this mystery. And now will I tell thee all these things, whatever thou askest me. For when I vanished away from the cross, then went I down into Sheol, that I might bring up Adam and all them that were with him, according to the supplication of Michael the archangel. Then said Bartholomew, Adonai, what was the voice which was heard? Yahushua saith unto him, Sheol said unto Beliar, as I perceive, a Elohim cometh hither. And the angels cried unto the power, saying, Remove your gates, ye princes, remove the everlasting doors, for behold, the King of glory cometh down. By the way, this is, um, I wish I would have talked more about this. This is, uh, this is what I believe Yahushua meant when he said he's the door. Um, I, I was reading a, another uh, book just today where they talk about how he was the door that they had to get through to get out of Sheol. Really interesting. Pause. Yahushua promised that Nathaniel would see angels descending because of him. Where do you suppose they might possibly descend to if not below the earth? Exactly. Continuing. Sheol said, Who is the king of glory that cometh down from heaven unto us? And when I had descended 500 steps, Sheol was troubled, saying, I hear the breathing of the Most High, and I cannot endure it. The Latin text says, He cometh with great fragrance, and I cannot bear it. But the devil answered and said, Submit not thyself, O Sheol, but be strong, for Elihim himself hath not descended upon the earth. But when I had descended yet five hundred steps, the angels and the powers cried out, Take hold, remove the doors, for behold, the king of glory cometh down. And Sheol said, O woe unto me, for I hear the breath of Elihim. And Beliar said unto Sheol, Look carefully who it is, for it is Elias, or Enoch, 
or one of the prophets that this man seemeth to me to be? But Sheol answered death and said, Not yet are six thousand years accomplished. And whence are those, O Beliar, for the sum of the number is in mine hands? And the devil said unto Sheol, Why affrightest thou me, Sheol? It is a prophet, and he hath made himself like unto Elohim. This prophet will, will we take and bring him hither unto those that think to ascend into heaven. There's so much good material here. I had to starve off any temptation to interrupt the reading several times. You see, the angels accompanying Yahusha were commanding that the gates be opened for the king of glory. But Satan still wasn't calculating the equation properly. After studying Yahusha for who knows how long, even grabbing an interview in the wilderness, he had only surmised the son of man to be Enoch or Elijah, or perhaps one of the prophets who had made himself like unto Elohim. Meanwhile, the prince of Sheol recognized the breath of the Most High entering the gates. According to the Latin, he arrived with an unbearable fragrance. This is perhaps a reference to the myrrh, which had originated from Eden, but was later delivered to Yahusha as an infant. I'm referring, of course, to the first book of Adam and Eve, wherein we read, For I will come and save you, and kings shall bring me, when in the flesh, gold, incense, and myrrh. Gold as a token of my kingdom, incense as a token of my divinity, and myrrh as a token of my suffering and my death. But, O Adam, put these by you in the cave, the gold that it may shed light over you by night, the incense that you smell it, its sweet savor, and the myrrh to comfort you in sorrow. The first book of Adam and Eve, chapter 31, 2 through 3. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh were delivered to Adam from paradise for safekeeping. Their purpose is even given. The word of Yahuwah relates each item in that he was coming to save Adam, but more on that in a moment. Presently, the myrrh was intended to comfort Adam in his sorrow. Do you think Adam got a whiff of it soon as Yahusha approached the gates of Sheol? Probably. The prince of Sheol sure did, and it wasn't a comfort for him. The interaction between Satan and the Prince of Sheol is much longer in the Gospel of Nicodemus. It actually goes on for like several chapters, as if you guys remember. Same buildup and conclusion, though. Satan was slow at putting it together while the Prince of Sheol repeatedly scolded him for delivering Yahusha and ruining everything. Here's the short of it. This comes from chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. While all the saints were rejoicing, behold, Satan, the prince and captain of death, said to the prince of Sheol, prepare to receive Yahusha of Nazareth himself, who boasted that he was the son of Elohim, and yet was a man afraid of death, and said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Besides, he did many injuries to me and to many others. For those whom I made blind and lame, and those also whom I tormented with several devils, he cured by his word. Yea, and those whom I brought dead to thee, he by force takes away from thee. It should be noted that the mysteries of the resurrection in questions of Bartholomew ex is explained to us by Yahusha, whereas uh, the two sons of Simeon play witness in the Gospel of Nicodemus. It probably has something to do with the fact that Yahusha and Simeon's two sons were in Sheol at the same time. All three witnesses agree. And isn't that something? Once again, their testimony just goes to show that nobody had yet put it together. Yahuwah the Most High Elohim wouldn't possibly let his only begotten son die as any deductive argument among ethereal management would assumedly go. 
While being tempted in the wilderness, Yahusha refused to jump. He must have been afraid of death then. For Satan, that was all the proof he needed. The prophet from Nazareth was only a man boasting that he was one of them. If Yahusha denied him any further information, it was only to hustle Satan and make it seem as though he didn't have the upper hand. His prayer in the garden on the night he was betrayed was probably the final nail in the coffin. In that very hour, in that very hour Satan was assured that he could indeed be killed. Yahusha had unveiled his Achilles heel. He didn't want to die. And so Satan made his move without a moment to lose. He had his children murder the word of Elohim, but not before first torturing and mangling him into a disfigured being. Pride goeth before the fall. It would take the prince of Sheol to explain the fact that he'd been played. So this comes from Nicodemus chapter 18. Then the prince of Sheol took Satan and with great uh, indication said to him, O thou prince of destruction, author of Beelzebub's defeat and banishment, the scorn of Elohim's angels and loathed by all righteous persons, what inclined thee to act thus? Thou wouldst crucify the king of glory and by his destruction has made us promises of very large advantages. But as a fool were ignorant of what thou was about. For behold, now that Yahusha of Nazareth with the brightness of his glorious divinity puts to flight all the horrid powers of darkness and death. He has broken down our prisons from top to bottom, dismissed all the captives, released all who were bound, and all who were wont formerly to groan under the weight of their torments have now insulted us, and we are like to be de- defeated by their prayers. Uh, the two sons of Simeon tell us what happened next. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then Adonai, holding Adam by the hand, delivered him to Michael the archangel, and he led them into paradise filled with mercy and glory. And there you have it, the resurrection of the dead. Part four. I think we're going to end on part four. I think this will be the last section. Fulfilled promises. Just because the dead have ascended from shield to paradise does not necessarily denote the resurrection from the dead, you'll tell me. Sure, I can dig that. Maybe only some of the set-apart arose from the dead. Some, like Chironus and Lynthius. That's not what the text says, though. The Gospel of Bartholomew, chapter 1, verse 20 says, Then did I enter in and uh, scourged him, Hasatan, and bound him with chains that cannot be loosed, and brought forth thence all the patriarchs, and came again unto the cross. Still doesn't say anything about the resurrection of the dead, you say. Well, then keep reading. Bartholomew saith unto him, I saw thee again hanging upon the cross, and all the dead arising and worshiping thee and going up again into their sepulchres. Tell me, Adonai, who was he whom the angels bear up in their hands, even that man that was very great of stature? And what spakest thou unto him that he sighed? So sore. Bartholomew says he saw all the dead arising and worshiping Yahusha. Not some, the all he spoke of went up again into their sepulchres. Also, the context of the all has already been established, included all the patriarchs. I don't know about you, but returning to one's sepulcher before ascending to paradise speaks of resurrection to me. No wonder why their tombs right alongside Yahusha's remains empty. 
He furthermore identified one of the rising souls as a man of very great stature. He said the angels bore him up in their hands. Kind of reads like Psalm 91, don't it? And then notice Yahushua's response. Uh, Gospel of uh, Bartholomew 122. I don't know why they all say Barnabas. That's really weird. Yahushua answered and said unto him, It was Adam the first formed, for whose sake I came down from heaven upon earth. And I said unto him, I was hung upon the cross for thee and for thy children's sake. And he, when he heard it, groaned and said, So was thy good pleasure, O Adonai. The identity of the person rising up to paradise is none other than Adam. In case you missed that, Adam has returned to paradise. And he was huge. <laughs> Not a small deal. That's practically a, syn a synonym for resurrection. And anyways, it lines up perfectly with an earlier prophecy. This comes from the Revelation of Moshe. Then says, uh, and the Revelation of Moshe doesn't have verses or chapters, oddly enough. Then says Yahuwah to his angels, why have you stopped driving Adam out of paradise? It is not that the sin is mine or that I have judged ill. Then the angels, failing, falling to the ground, worshipped Yahuwah, saying, just art thou, Adonai, and judgest what is right. And turning to Adam, Yahuwah said, I will not permit thee henceforth to be in paradise. And Adam answered and said, Adonai, give me of the tree of life that I may eat before I am cast out. Then Yahuwah said to Adam, Thou shalt not now take of it, for it has been assigned to the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turneth to guard it on account of thee, that thou mayest not taste of it and be free from death forever, but that thou mayest have the war which the enemy has set in thee. But when thou art gone out of, and, okay, so this is what I want you to pay attention to. But when thou art gone out of paradise, if thou shalt keep thyself from all evil as being destined to die, I will again raise thee up when the resurrection comes. And, th and then there shall be given thee of the tree of life, and thou shalt be free from death forever. The receiving of the tree of life is identified with his return to paradise. Come to think about it, how else could anyone enjoy the fruits of paradise unless they were first given a spirit body? Yahuwah even says, I will again raise thee up when the resurrection comes. Well, Adam has been risen up, has he not? Must be the resurrection then. The exact same scene is told to us in the book of Adam. So this comes from chapter 28, verse 2 through 4 of the book of Adam. Adam replied to Yahuwah and told him, I beseech you, Adonai, give me of the tree of life so that I may eat before I have gone forth. Then Yahuwah addressed a speech to Adam and told him, You will not take any of it any more in your lifetime. I have posted burning cherubs and a turning sword to keep it from you, lest you should taste it and become immortal and boast, saying, I shall not die ever, and you will conduct the fight which the enemy has conducted against you. If you go out of paradise and guard yourself from every evil, you will die, and after death you will rise in the future resurrection. Then indeed I will give you of the tree of life, and you will be immortal forever. Same promise as before. Adam's arising from death is attributed to the resurrection by which he will return to paradise, and for what purpose? To eat from the tree of life, of course. Actually, the revelation of Moshe twice gives the same prophecy. Yahuwah's first promise is delivered with tension, as Adam would only return if he kept himself from all evil, as being destined to die. Adam obviously made a habit of repentance, as Yahuwah assured him after his death that he had secured the resurrection to come. Here's uh, again from the revelation of Moshe. And Elohim called Adam and said, Adam, Adam. And the body answered out of the ground and said, Here am I, Adonai. 
And Yahuwah says to him, I said to thee, dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. Again, I promise thee the resurrection. I will raise thee up in the last day in the resurrection with every man who is of thy seed. How interesting. Only the seed of Adam would get resurrected in the last day. The seed of Cain was not necessarily his, but you already know that by now. Also, the seed of Satan can repent and become the seed of Yahuwah and vice versa, but I'm being repetitive from past papers. Once again, the book of Adam repeats the same burial scene as the revelation of Moshe, complete with a promise, and it reads, this is from the book of Adam, chapter 41, verses 2 through 3. And Yahuwah told him, behold, as I told you, you are soil and you have returned to soil, but... I will raise you up in the resurrection, which I have promised you at the time of resurrection. Resurrection, resurrection, tomato, tomato. Pronounce them with a different accent, but they both mean the same thing. The context here is that he has returned to the soil and the resurrection happens at the moment of his rising. But wait, there's more. The book of Adam, chapter 13. This is not to be right now, but in the future times when 5,000 years will be completed. Then at five and a half thousand years, the beloved son of Elohim, Messiah will come upon the earth to resurrect Adam's body from his fall because of the transgression of the commands. He will come and he will be baptized in the river Jordan. And as soon as he will have come forth from the water with the anointing oil, he will anoint him and all his descendants so that they will rise at the time of the resurrection. Yahuwah said, I will admit them into, into paradise and I will anoint them with that unction. According to this, the purpose of Messiah's coming to earth was to resurrect Adam's body. Notice how it doesn't say Adam's ruach or Adam's soul. It says his body. Mission accomplished then. And now compare what you've just read, namely verses 4 and 5 with Nicodemus. Almost done, guys. This is actually really interesting here. Chapter 14 of the Gospel of Nicodemus. I'm just going to jump down to verse 6 and 7. Um, you guys can see it highlighted. And it says... Then will Mashiach, the most merciful son of Elohim, come on earth to raise again the human body of Adam, and at the same time to raise the bodies of the dead. And when he cometh, he will be baptized in Jordan. Then with the oil of his mercy, he will anoint all those who believe on him. And the oil of his mercy will continue to future generations for those who shall be born of the water and the Ruach HaKadosh unto eternal life. So I hope you read that carefully. The prophecy regarding the timing of the resurrection in the book of Adam matches up precisely with the Gospel of Nicodemus chapter 14, specifically verses 6 through 7. Upon hearing news of Yahushua's baptism in the Jordan from Sheol, Adam knew the word of Yahuwah had fulfilled his promises. It's not like Hasatan wasn't given the same information. He had not only read the books, he was probably there for the dunking. The defining difference between Adam and Hasatan, however, is that only the meek would inherit the earth, which the devil had haughtily thought to offer Yahusha. Put in slightly different terms, Adam recognized him immediately. It's like I keep saying, only the prophets foresaw his coming. All right, guys, that's it for tonight. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Um... Yeah, and um, I just, I'll point out there... Um, we could, you guys, if you have any questions or whatever, any any disagreements or, you know, what else. Um, if you notice there, it did say that Yahushua came in the year 5,500. And um, 
that same passage talks about how Enoch and Elijah would come 500 years later, which would make 6,000. Um, that would end the six, six days of creation and start the Sabbath rest, which was the millennial kingdom, a thousand years. Now, I used to read that all the time and go, that doesn't make any sense because here we are 2,000 years later. Clearly, that didn't come true. And now I'm looking at it going, wait a second. I think it really did go down. And I think that the, the Antichrist, the two witnesses, everything came uh, roughly 500 to 700 years later, give or take. Um, anyways, um, that's, that, that's my paper on the resurrection. Next week, I will go even further into that because I want to read you guys a lot of material um, that appears to be written from people who claim to have been resurrected and to have been in paradise and to have conquered the earth with Messiah. When you guys read this stuff, if like, if this doesn't give you guys like shivers, like, like, Oh wow. Because that's everything that we're talking about and um, implying. So <clears throat> I think that there's a reason why if you guys, you know, you, you look to the Masoretic, the Hebrew Masoretic, you look to the LXX, the Greek Septuagint, um, you look to like a lot of edemic literature <clears throat> and all the timelines from Adam to Noah, none of them agree. None of them. Like you would think that the scribes, you know, who are writing the LXX in, in the Greek and, um, you know, and the People writing the edemic literature stuff, they could they could get these you know dates of who begot who right, but it makes me it makes me wonder if there was it was there was a purposeful confusion of these dates so that we wouldn't truly know the hour that we're living in. Um, yeah, hopefully, you guys right. are. Yeah, you're right on that. Yeah, the, the discrepancies are there in 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 the Targum, in the LXX, and the Masoretic in the time those timelines. So I yeah I agree. Yeah, and of course we saw that when we were doing our study on the the Targums, and you uh, Rob had lined up the LXX and others, and we were looking at those dates, going, "Wow, these are way off. Like yeah. none of them none of them are are." Um, in line and in fact when you read a lot of edemic literature uh like the second book of adam and eve it actually has uh enoch alive at a point when he should have been you know taken to heaven or whatever and so there's there's yeah tons of discrepancies like that um and i also find it interesting that all these books that were removed or were not included in canon, they tell this very similar story. You could totally see if Rome is calling the shots and they're putting together canon, um, that they're not going to be putting in stuff that like their end is, you know, imminent in the next, you know, 200 years or whatever. Um, so those are my thoughts on that. Does anyone else have any thoughts? Well, we know he... In scriptures, it says that the enemy will uh, work on changing times and and laws. So, you know, this could have been in the works from the very beginning uh, to hide the timelines and so forth. And I think we're all discovering that now with looking at uh, our our recent history and the lies in that even. Yeah. 
What do you make of the like the short season and how that works in the timeline? Like, like it, like Josh just posted. It, it seems like it, it should be wrapped up neatly in a nice seven thousand year, whatever. But so this little bit seems to exceed that. Do you think that's the case, or do you think it, it, we're actually going to land on seven thousand years whenever this like wraps up? Yeah, well, that, that's something that you and I have been talking about for a, a long time. Well, so, well, no, uh, okay, Josh just wrote start of 7K as Shabbat. No, well, not necessarily because you're you're going from zero, year zero to 1,000, that's day one. So by the time you reach the year 6,000, you have now completed 6,000 years. So 6,000 to 7,000 would be the Shabbat. That would be the millennial kingdom. So, if I'm, am I correct in that, or am I doing the math wrong on that? I'm, I'm terrible at math, guys. Really, seriously. Like, uh, but it seems six thousand to seven thousand would be the 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 Sabbath. Because by the time you get six thousand, you have completed six thousand years. So, you know, obviously, if we're post millennial, we are post seven thousand. And I guess that's the question you and I both have, Dave. Is have we completed seven thousand years yet? Has there literally been, uh, has there been like, you know, day one up to a thousand years, and then, you know, Yahusha and the the set apart, they went back to paradise or wherever they went. Um, I'm starting to form a new picture now, and I don't want to give it all away this week, but but I will be talking about it more in depth next week. But from what I'm reading, and I'll just tell you guys, you can read in advance the odes of Solomon. They're they're from they're phenomenal. The Odes of Solomon seems to give this perspective that the people who are writing this book or inhabiting this book are have open access to both the earth and paradise. Some of them appear to be in paradise. Some of them appear to be in the earth, and they're going back and forth. So, which is, and it's it's pretty crazy stuff. So, it makes me wonder if maybe they are on paradise in paradise now. I don't know. I don't know. And but I yeah, those are just a lot of questions I don't have or answers to. I just got more coffee, so I'm drinking coffee here. Anyone can jump in. Uh, you are right. The seventh day would be the sixth to the seventh. Yeah, yeah. I think the fact that we're realizing the deception. Of of as we're saying the what time it is is the revealing again that that this is the time that we're recognized the deception is showing us the end. Mm. I'm sort of having I, a I'm, thought. I, I don't know if this was like people knew this further, or it's been something like I think through many generations that we've had this kind of um, the coming or the second coming or the, the, the end has been, you know, kind of um, at the forefront of people's minds. But now I think more than others and more is being revealed to show us that the deception that's been going on, the deception that's been happening. And that's just, and, and for me, that's, that's not a coincidence 
that's from the Father giving us that gift of discernment. He's to, to show to see this revealing, and we do that as we kind of um, the, gain some wisdom here. We recognize that without knowing the exact time, which we don't, because we don't know that uh, the next. Um, as he reminds us, we don't know. He, he's told us not of Satan's plan, of the Father's plan. We know um, Yahushua is going to return any moment. There's, uh, And that's what I'm getting at. So when we're looking at the calendar, we can get confused by what the exact date is, but we don't need to know the exact date because, as I was just sharing, it's the discernment that we need that's been um, that we're recognizing, the wisdom that's been sharing us to recognize we don't know the exact date. But then again, look to the Father, and we don't know his day or hour that he's coming. And that's, again, where our eyes should be. And he's reminding us through his signs and through this of, I think, where we've been pointing at his imminent return again. Yeah. And, you know, we've, I've said this in past, um, past weeks and so on, that there seems to be, when you look all throughout history, I'm kind of a broken record here, but when you look at all through history at, at biblical literature, there always seemed to be an understanding of the days they were living in. And in fact, even in the pre-diluvian the pre-diluvian world, even though they they didn't repent, even though the flood came, like the books we have, like the Book of the Giants and others, all state that the enemy all knew that the flood was coming. They all knew. And they they knew when it was coming about when, and they still chose not to repent. When the Messiah came, there was seemed like everybody knew that that was the time the Messiah was supposed to come. Um, I, I put a great deal into this tonight to show why they totally miss Yahusha was the um, the Messiah, and that's strictly because a proud heart cannot understand the um, the importance of humility and how. You know, humility always looks like the losing hand to a proud heart. That, that um, was beautiful. That, Noel, what that you did in your article, and, I, and I'm glad you bring it up because I want to um, share that you did that so well. And it rings true of today. Uh, really, it's the same lesson. So, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, and we could talk more about that, but I, I wanted to, you know, touch on the fact that you know you, you look at like post mud flood um i think that there's been a sense for the last 200 years that we are in the end days now you know how what how far in the end days you know obviously is what we're discussing we, we're like okay we're post-millennial um but you know w whether people expect his his first coming his second coming it's all kind of the same principle right like we're all expecting his imminent return but I've pointed this out that I have um, I had in my possession. I have copies of it now. I don't have the original. Um, the uh, letter my third great grandfather, uh, his name was James. He wrote to my second great grandmother. Uh, her name was Sarah. During the Civil War, he was a blacksmith uh, for the for the Union in the Civil War, and he would talk about how he thought he was like in the last days and the whole world was going to hell and it was so terrible. And, you know, he said, Jesus had, he would return at any moment and he would go like walking through the woods at night, uh, just 
waiting for the second coming. And so it seems like there's been this sense for the last 200 years that like, yeah, we're in the last days. And, um, and generally across the board, it seems like just people like not just in the Christian faith or, you know, you look at the Jewish faith as uh, Islam, you look at the far East, whatever. it seems like all these people have this idea. We're like going into either a resets, the age of Aquarius, the, you know, some big, huge paradigm shift um, or the end of the world. And it's just, it's all there for everybody. Yes, yeah, so I look forward to where this, um, what you're sharing next week and um, what the more is being revealed. Beautiful. Yeah, okay, so the discussion going on right now in the voice chat is, was the millennial reign the seventh day or the, um, you know, did Messiah come in the fourth day? And that's, you know, I, I guess obviously I can't um, speak with assurance to that. It's um, this is why I brought up earlier that it seems like all the records before the flood were kind of um, kind of skewed and changed around. It's hard for me to. I'd have to look. You know, it'd be interesting to see what Jubilee says because I haven't done a strict study on all those uh, Jubilee years. Um, you know, I don't know, but I, I have pointedly stated on here. I've shown Enoch's calendar, and it it seems to paint the same picture that Adam and Eve and these books paint about the, um, you know, that finishing up. Um, yeah. That, you know, it would be within, uh, according to Enoch, it's roughly about a week after Messiah that the, the millennial reign would be ushered in a week being about 700 years. So it, what I'm reading with Adam and Eve and these, these books and Nicodemus and these prophecies that the antichrist and the, prophets would come 500 years after messiah that that lines up with, with that timeline it was interesting how like satan didn't really know who the messiah was but he seemed to know the time like he obviously questioned the messiah to make sure that he wasn't who he thought he might be so he he knew like that was the right time to start questioning people you know what I mean? Yeah, he did. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I pointed out when we read two weeks, uh, I guess it was three weeks ago now, uh, the Gospel of Nicodemus, that I had made a statement in here that it always starts from the top floor management and goes down. You know, like uh, if, you, if you've ever worked a really terrible job, it's usually because it starts from the management on the top, right? Or if you work a really great job, the job itself might not be that great, but you love the job because you have great management. So... It, it seemed to be the same thing with um, – we see the same picture being formed in the Gospel of Nicodemus where it starts out that the, the Jews, the Yahudim, are completely in denial of who Yahushua was. They don't believe he's the Messiah. He can't possibly be the Messiah. And then at the end of the book, you see them admit that he was. And it's really interesting because they're um, admitting that he was the Messiah only comes after Satan realizes that he's the Messiah. You guys see that? So when Satan thought, no, this isn't the Messiah, we need to off this guy, the Jews felt that, you know, the management decided that the workers did the same thing. It's really interesting how that works. Yeah, no, I like how you piece this together, uh, 
I recall reading all of this stuff and the way you just flowed it through here made it a great uh, explanation of it. So just great job on that. Thank you. Who are you sharing again realized once Satan realized? Well, when we read the Gospel of Nicodemus three weeks ago, um, it it starts out that the Pontius Pilate. Now, can remember in the Gospels that Pontius Pilate's wife had the 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 dream or the vision of Yahusha. We still don't know what that looked like. You know, some people have speculated that Yahusha actually appeared to her in the room. We we really don't know. I guess I if there is a text that says what happens, I haven't read it yet. Let's put it that way. So it starts out with Pontius Pilate. Um, he's the one kind of like turning the law back on the Jews, the Yahudim. And the Yahudim, they don't believe that he's the Messiah. Um, I just lost track of your question. But um, it, was, it was because Satan himself um, did not believe that he was the, uh, the son of, of the Most High. And it wasn't right, until... That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And... And it, but you know, going back to this, we see this with um, you know ministries today, and you know, here we are at, in this Discord channel, and the unexpected cosmology is a is a you know, like on YouTube, I have a very small channel on there, and the spirit of envy is a real serious thing. Like there, if you read the twelve patriarchs. Um, envy actually destroys people if you become envious of another ministry, another person. And I have to guard myself because I'll go out there and I'll look and I'll go, man, there's some big ministries out there, 100,000 subscribers or more. And, you know, look at all what they're doing. And I would love to do that. And see, the way it works is you start looking at this and going, man, I can't be, I, I can't possibly be doing for the kingdom of heaven what you know, these bigger ministries are doing. And that's, that's exactly how a proud heart thinks, how a, um, you know, how Satan thinks, right? Like that's the whole thing we just went through and why he thought there's no way this could be the son of the most high. There's no way he's not doing anything that I would imagine that he would do. Um, and um, it's really hard for us to imagine how, um, you know, <sighs> how someone who is has a very humble profession, someone has a very small, um, you know, it seemingly unimportant to the world can shake and rattle, you know, the kingdom of heaven. And that's one of the great mysteries of how Yahuwah works, right? Like we, we look at, we look at um, all that we've been through for the last several years. Like think of when the flat earth movement started in 2015 and one of the big things that I, there was a big, um, I believe there was a big changing uh, passing of the torch or passing of the passing of the torch is a terrible occultist phrase, but a passing of the baton at that time, because a lot of the big ministries, they were like, this can't be right. The earth can't be flat and motionless because it goes against everything we've taught and our entire ministries and everything we've been taught in seminary and all this kind of stuff. And we're not backing down on this now. And all of a sudden, you, it's like it's like Yahuwah goes to the the uh, you know the, the 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 elite first. He goes to the people with the degrees and all that kind of stuff, and he basically passed it to the people in the back of the bus. Like you look at the people who are like who are like 
have their eyes woken to scripture and all this stuff now, like they're the people in the back of the bus, right? And um, th that's how I like to think about it. You know, the people you would never look twice at, the person sitting there silently, you know, doesn't, oh, doesn't. <laughs> are, you the, are you that guy in the back of the bus? <laughs> Welcome to the back of the bus. <laughs> well, no, that's what I, I mean, that's what I think about it, right? And that's, you know, that, that's all going back to this humility versus pride theme. And, um, yeah. and, and nobody, nobody really thinks that the guy in the back of the bus can be the person to, to get, be given the keys to the kingdom, right? You know, to, to be carrying the message, but that's the way he works. Yeah, you made a good point about these like large ministries and and the seminary teachers and so forth that you know that information going out it's going to be very difficult if you built a ministry on a certain viewpoint or maybe you're all prophecy or you're this or you're that and you have something revealed and or can you humble yourself and and say you know what i might be wrong here or, or i might be teaching something that uh, I, I was, you know, mistaken in, and can can people do that? That's going to be very tough for a lot of people, and so that's probably why the back of the bus is is moving forward with some of this information. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing right now. With, um, I mean, obviously that that's what happened with the flat Earth. It's what happened with Torah, right? Like, mm -hmm. there, there are so many. Um, I mean, I believe, you know men of God, I guess you call them, whatever. I mean, people who have really devoted their lives to um, the Father and to, you know, Jesus. And um, and then when this comes along, they're like, no, this can't be right because this goes against everything I was taught my entire life and I can't be wrong. There's no way I could be wrong about that, right? And there's that pride that comes in. Um, the same thing we're seeing now with uh, with this mud flood talk. And it's, it's really like um, uh, Mike had said it, like, Ultimately, everybody is is waiting on Yahusha to show up and take care of things, right? Like that's what we're waiting for. So, what we're in a lot of ways, what we're saying is, you know, we. That's why I, I try not to argue this with people, um, but people are are starting as as this mud flood talk, this millennial kingdom talk is starting to now infiltrate different, you know, different Torah communities and people are talking about this and and a lot of leaders are getting upset at this because they don't want to have to look at possibly tweaking this idea. You know, they're all teaching that the millennial kingdom is still coming and they can't they can't they can't foul them just saying, you know what? Maybe maybe it, you know, it, what we're saying is still true. We weren't wrong. It's just, it's already come, you know, and it's, just, it's those little tiny things that when you can't, when you can't recognize that you could be wrong about things that, um, you know, that, that, that pride steps in and I don't know. And it, it's, it's painful because I'm a guy who, um, I hope you guys know I'm I'm not patting myself on the head here, okay? But this is really painful for a guy like me because, as you guys know, I'm a very prolific writer. And when something comes along, like new information, that I go, oh, my goodness, now I ha I'm wrong about – like the soul sleep issue, right? Yeah. Like, I spent, uh, I wrote a book on this. I spent a lot of time writing the soul sleep issue that like, guys, when we die, you're going in the ground, you're going to sleep, you're waiting on that trumpet blast. And now I go, uh, I think I was wrong about all of that, right? I have to now f change my, um, you know, all my articles every, or, you know, r recognize that 
I wait, I spent all that time writing that and I was wrong. And that's very, very, very hard to do. It's okay. Just take that humility pill and come to the back of the bus with me. (laughs) (laughs) I like the back of the bus. So you see, it's a lesson in pride there because either way, as you, as we've shared earlier and you shared earlier, we're still talking new Jerusalem and his kingdom. Yep. Yeah, nothing's really changed. It's just the, uh, you know, the timeline type of stuff. Yeah, precisely. And we, we're all doing the commands. We're all, uh, you know, loving Yah with all our heart, soul, and mind, our neighbor as ourself. Uh, we're being, walking in the fruits of the spirit. So there's nothing really changing. It's, you know, why, why would we, why, this is the thing. Why would we want to argue with our brothers and sisters about who's right, who's wrong, and so forth. It's it's more or less we're all digging into scripture. We're all seeking the truth. And if it's if it's something that you can't wrap your mind around, then you just just admit it. You know, hey, there's a lot of great uh, possibilities, maybe truths in that, but my mind is not there yet. So if people can at least do that, I think that's a good step for people to at least uh, be able to say that and think that until they can get further or deeper down in the rabbit hole, so to speak, uh, in understanding this as, as everyone, just like in the flat earth movement, you know, it, it may take someone a month of research. It may take someone years of research to finally get deep enough to go, okay, I get it. I see it now. Yeah. Yeah. Now back to what I was saying earlier, it's how you now, and this shows you who's shows you really, the Holy Spirit at work, it shows you which spirit you the are you following in the way, the wisdom you're listening to. Mm-hmm. Because are you going to judge others for having right. a different belief? And one of those beliefs for me was, in which kind of I had to look at what I was being shown, was, um, we'll say Christianity or Christian. But it wasn't so much that. It was, again, our relationship with Yahusha. Ultimately, because that's what it's supposed to, that's, being a Christian is supposed to be about. And it's our relationship with him. And with this, it made me question my own beliefs and go, wait, wait a second. If you guys are believing this, I had to look at it again with an open heart, myself included, and then went, wow. You know, knocked to the floor basically on my knees, giving thanks actually, going, how'd I how'd I forget again? Um but what what it what it showed me was having that um, open mind, having that discerning mind also that given that discerning spirit that he's giving us to look at this information like you've been saying, Noel, and change and accept the what's the real truth or accept you are wrong. Um, open up to further what is being revealed to us, wisdom. In truth, true truth, because we we know for us now where we're where we where we've come, it's really it's looking through the eyes of Yahusha that we can see what we see. We can discern the truth. We can discern the lies of this world. Otherwise, no, we don't see it. This is the humble heart I was talking about. Where others we can still see now they'll get caught up in the millennium kingdom, and the other one is. They'll still look at others in the truth or so-called movement and say, yeah, but you guys believe in Yahushua. How can you guys believe in that? And I'm like, why are you guys judging us whether we believe it or not? We're yeah. not judging you that you don't yet. 
You see that difference right there? So yeah. I think that's really the next, really the next, the, the crux of this, where it's coming at, no matter what, what it is, this, where instead of being divided, it's really being more neutral, being with his spirit that shows us this. And it's really coming right to home in everyone's life, whether you're in the truther, whether you're in the church, really it's that divisive where we're being shown it wasn't necessarily what is the truth. It's how we relating to each other. And that's his spirit really filling us up to well, go, oh, and and at the same time, we will know the truth because he's going to show us. Yeah, we have just, a lot of we have a lot of brothers and sisters that are quick to judge. And like you were mentioning, and it's it's something that uh, I think I hope and pray that people will see what they do and repent and and have a different uh, mindset and perspective in showing love to brothers and sisters and not necessarily judging them or uh, speaking falsely or badly about them and and really understanding what love means just as if if you if you were raised in a family and you have brothers and sisters you would you could fight with them half the time but you're going to love them you know it's, it's just it's just that type of family with different personalities and people people need to learn that and some hopefully won't take longer than others yeah, that's been something I have really been working on myself and recognizing what it is to not um, criticize, speak ill of, or even, uh, it, they're terrible words, but gossip or slander, um, anybody else um, in, who I would call a brother or sister. And, you know, in, in this I mean, I know all the you know terrible things people say about me all the time, and um, you know all the the hate mail I'm constantly trying to fight off. And then people come and they ask me, "What do you think about such and such person?" And I, and I always, I mean, I I try really hard, guys, to be like, you know, I mean, the the fact is, is that there are people that personalities that rub us the wrong way. It just it is what it is, and there are unfortunately some. Um, uh, ministry people who, you know, we just don't work together. We keep, we don't click. Like we will never click. Uh, we will never work together. Uh, but I, I just have to recognize that these people are called by Yah and that they're doing His work. Um, and they were all different parts of the body. And um, you know, it's and so that's that's something that I really I hope you guys know. I'm really I really want to. Uh, be true to here as to not, uh, yeah, gossip or put down any other people or ministries out there uh, in the Torah field or community, whatever. Community, I think community has been a hard thing. Whether whatever intentions, whether it was a, a Christian community, a church, we got to remember the world where it's at, and it seems like we go, why did this mess up? How come this is not going going right? And we got to remember, it's the the war that's been waged against us, against the family of Yahuwah, against his children on earth, to keep us from really coming together in community, to sow that evil through that. And so we've had this in our relationships, whether it's family 
or why how come we can't have a loving community how come it always seems to you know people whether it's gossip or drama and then when we recognize what has been against us instead of fighting amongst us we can see that and but what i'm i'm getting to is that it's <laughs> i think i made the joke the other day the other week about the amish and some of these other communities i wonder how peaceful i mean we all have our human um the, our human nature um whether the technology is there or not and what i'm getting at is peaceful community but on earth it's it's i think it's a rare thing a rare family it's a, a blessing from yahuwah it's 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 possible but i think it's a sign not what we're looking through is to be neutral don't beat up people because things aren't perfect they, they, they it's the water was muddied people let's let's have a, a understand that but what's the but it's that feeling of what we know what we'd like we'd love to be in that loving community and that's again when we hear remember who's promised us that that's really something i really Can I just say um, no you know that you know, I, it, it's difficult for, um, you know, me to judge people because you don't judge people, you know, but you righteously judge someone. Like if you see somebody that's that's just living in depravity and and just, uh, you know, drinking all the time or smoking all the time or cussing all the time or just, you know, you can't just yeah it's say, discernment okay, that's, okay. that's where it's discerned you, you can have discernment without judgment and I, discernment I, is understanding there understanding I, that yeah that isn't okay well that's right there is judgment discernment is actually yeah judging no, for yourself. I, I agree i agree that um, i i am not an advocate i've never been an advocate of you know non-judgment um the my understanding of judge not lest he be judged is that um because i mean torah you read torah it's all about you judge people's behavior and if they're depraved right. you do such and such um it's however you judge someone that is how you will be judged um and, and so the thing is is with a lot of i mean there are things that happen where you know someone walks away from the faith i can judge that yeah i'm like yeah i'm not going to call you brother anymore you have walked away uh from the faith and we know that's happening to a lot of people right now it's 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 really saddening i i, I still everywhere yeah it's everywhere i'm mourning it daily it's in my face all the time um i had to like i had yoke in my face this last year i did you know it, it was it was really bad this last year and i can judge that like I, i'm not gonna call them brother or sister anymore um because they are not um but the fact is is that a lot of the things that i think we judge is um and i don't want to get all psychological and use like shrink terms and stuff but i think most often we project onto others um, I see a lot of people judging others and they're ultimately projecting their own fears, their own, um, you know, basically, yeah, themselves. And so, um, I, you know, when it comes to like personalities and stuff and, um, you know, for, okay, for, for an example, I'll give you an example. Um, I uh, think Hollywood is evil. 
Okay. So, and I think probably most people in this room would agree I, with that. I know it is. Yeah. <laughs> right. So when I see certain people within the more Torah movement that are leading towards having an effect in Hollywood, I am naturally, there's something about me that wants to judge and say, you're wrong to do that. But then I have to back up and go, wait a second here. Um, I, I really don't know how Yah is working in their heart or what he's calling them to. Those are things that there's some things that are are really mysterious. Um, I mean, you my, mean them being starstruck or them actually pursuing an act, acting career? No, you know, work in the industry, um, you know, and in, in like, say, um, okay, for example, um, I, I think, I personally think, this is my evaluation, that uh, making movies out of the Bible is cheapening the work of the Ruach HaKodesh. Okay, that the, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Ruach HaKodesh, uh, and the scripture was written. There's a reason why Yah wrote the scriptures to us. And when we try to make it into, you know, glamorize it into cartoons for kids or movies for adults, you know, the Ten Commandments or even the Passion of the Christ, all that kind of stuff, it actually cheapens the work of the Spirit. Okay, that's that's You wrote my an point. article about this, didn't you? Um, I know. I actually, uh, I actually copied and pasted the sermon by um, I oh, it was who was it in the fifties? Um, A. W. Tozer. Yeah, so we had this was. conversation. Um, so it's old. Yeah. This 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 sermon that that people have gone back to to go look. This isn't something new. Somebody's already pointed this out. Why we shouldn't really have done this, and what spirit is it under? Yeah, and maybe um, Will from Truth to Stranger Than Fiction yes. did a video on it or something. Yes, yes. This is back when Will Goodrich and I were um, uh, very good friends, and we would have long three, four-hour conversations like every week or two. I mean, it, and uh, after I went to Torah, he he stopped speaking to me. He would never. He ne has never spoken to me since. He he felt very betrayed by that. He said he felt betrayed, um, but. You know, my point was, is that there are, you know, then I look at people who um, are trying to spread the message of the gospel um, in this kind of media, and I have to kind of step back and go, you know what, I'm going to be real, real careful about my judgments here, and I really don't know where Yah is working in all this. Some of this stuff is just mysterious to me. This, it, 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 is this point coming across to you guys? Like, I have my yes, conviction. Well, it's kind of relevant. I, I have one of the brothers who happens to be in the hospital, maybe still, maybe okay. he's getting out because that's been part of the conversation too. Right. It, some are kind of, I have, I have yeah. my, I have my convictions of what I won't do or what I will and won't do. Um, for example, like on YouTube, one of the reasons I've decided, if you guys notice, like if you look at my oldest videos that I've just put back up from like three or four years ago, I used to use a lot of like different images and stuff to try to attract people, uh, which didn't really work anyways. Uh, but now I just, I don't do that. Um, I, I just, I, my belief is that if you are to be a, a true um, child of Yah, that you have to read. Like you have to pick up your Bible and read it. Like you, you don't need flashy pigeon glitter. Uh, you, you don't need to be entertained by all this stuff. You, you just need to be able to pick up a Bible and read. You, you have to. You can't. You can't just have. You know. Yeah, uh, you, you can't, can't get you, it from. You, you know, like you were saying, but, the the motion pictures and stuff. You can't right. get it from that. But but 
I don't, I'm not going to, um, uh, that is my conviction. And what I'm trying to say is I, I'm not going to judge um, those in this sense who, who are part of that. Um, I have right. a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends. There's, there's other purposes. Don't condone unrighteousness. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a lot of friends who make very flashy videos. And I've just mm -hmm. decided I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to condone them for it, though. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they, they would say the opposite that, you know, by me just doing uh, these little talks we do on Discord and stuff that I'm really cheapening my my ability to reach more people. And um, you see what I'm saying? It's like there's two sides to it, right? So. Can I ask a super left field question? Please do. Actually Sorry. pertaining to the timeline, though. But yes. so what's what's your current stance on pre-existence? My current stance is that all souls were created on the first day. All souls. Um, so I don't know what all souls were doing on the first day up to the time we were born. Um, but if you actually read the book of Second Ezra, uh, Second Ezra, it is very clear. It, you don't even have to read between the lines. It's very clear. Like Ezra understood that all souls were created and that he's asking the question, why can't you just deliver them all now? He's he, like, Ezra was so sick of the evil in this world. He's like, just deliver all the souls now, redeem us, uh, get it. And, and the angel uh, uh, Uriel or Uriel, um, he was like, no, I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. And he goes to the explanation that, you know, he said, like, uh, tell a, a woman to deliver 10 children at once. And he's like, well, I couldn't do that. He's like, exactly. The earth works the same way. So um, I, I do believe in preexistence uh, that um, I've come to that conclusion this year, by the way, guys. Um, I used to be uh, against that view. Um, well, you know what movie came out this year? A cartoon called Soul. Yeah, I haven't watched it. I, I haven't watched that yet. Um, I haven't seen that movie. Was, again, it's again don't exposing a lot in one way, putting a twist, but showing a lot. Also, what you just described. I I think that anything you could gleam as value probably from movies, unless you're being super super proactive in your mental state. They're trying to put you into a specific state of being to become a sponge and your subconscious or like they they can give you messages that are absolutely yes, that's, underneath that's, 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 um, what your what your actual thinking right. and your subliminal. active thoughts. Exactly. So, yeah, they say subliminal. I don't like to use the psych terms as much either, like you kind of said, Noel, but it's just like when you start to see the things the more you see, the more you have to think, what am I actually not seeing? And then you look at somebody else and they are seeing different things. You're like, wow, so I picked that up without even knowing. And it just gets freaky after a while. I, I mean, I, I think about a lot of different scenarios. I think about like, it's really strange that I, I'm no, I no longer consider myself a young earth creationist. I used to be my entire life, I say this probably every week, I, I quote I'm 40 all the time, like that means something, but the first 40 years, of, you know, the first 30 
seven, thirty-eight years of my life, whatever. I, I was a diehard young Earth creationist. Uh, you know, the Earth is six thousand years old, people, and uh, you know everything you see, all the fossil record, everything. It, it all happened in those six thousand years. But now I'm looking at it and going, yeah, I don't know if that's true anymore. Like, uh, keep in mind, guys, I am, I am. I'll make this very clear. I am not an evolutionist. I will never be an evolutionist. Uh, evolution is stupid. But I sometimes look at the the, um, the the fossil record and go, well, what if that wasn't Noah's flood? What if that was the world that was destroyed beforehand? Um, and there's just a lot of things we don't know. Zen Garcia talks about this, and he talks about uh, the Atlantean age, which I think is really interesting. Um, I had always assumed that the Atlantean age was the, the sons of Cain before the flood. But th if you actually look at the, you know, the Atlantean literature and that kind of stuff, these people who have these megalithic cities, uh, very advanced cities seem to be um, very different than human. And um, as we know them to be, and so I, I sometimes wonder if, like, these huge underwater cities and stuff, these aren't pre-flood. These are actually the ancient world beforehand. So um, I don't know. I don't want my, I don't want my imagination right. to, to get – I don't want the – Yeah, I don't want to get carried away. But I, in a lot of ways, it has really kind of released a lot of tension and just let me let yes. go. And not feel like I have to yeah. fight. Like, no, -uh, those those fossils are like from Noah's flood. It's like I, at this point, I'm like, I fine, fine, fine. They, they happened beforehand. I don't really care. I I, I, I don't care if the Earth is ten thousand or a hundred thousand years old. Or I have no clue. Right. Maybe it's twenty. I don't know. I just yeah. don't know. Right, we're not no longer. There's only one door we. What does it say? There's only one door we put our we nail our cross to, and that's to Yahusha. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not yeah. putting yeah. on any of these others. Yeah, no, it's funny to hear you say that because that's that. that my, Michael makes fun of me. He calls me Switzerland because uh, I'm I I I'll do what you just said. Is I can see different points of views. I'm not going to sit there and argue about you know uh, to debate you in that sense. But hey, you have truth in your points. Uh, I may not agree with all of them, and I have truth in my points, but. We all have our, I guess, leanings towards our what we've been revealed and where where we we believe the truth is, and we're humble enough to say that we can change uh, with more evidence uh, that we discover. Well, um, I have uh, changed so much this last year or two. Um, probably has been startling to some people, and it's it's a terrible um, it's a terrible business model because you know any kind of business model you <laughs> you get your audience and you just try to please that audience right and um, um, some of you uh, Mike I don't know how long you've been around um, I think in a matter of years um, but quite a few man, long time uh, yeah what's so interesting just cut you off right there as long as your wife's okay with it which it seems it has been all along you're doing great <laughs> oh yeah she's um my wife is amazing she is um on board just with every in fact pre-existence um 
we've been in, we've been on board with like everything. Like we are, you know, just spiritually like in tune. Um, and one day last spring, she comes in, uh, I had breakfast prepared. She sits down and she's like, I think we pre-existed. And I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> We're doing pre-existence now. And she's like, no, really? I think. And so I started looking into it and I start. I'm like, wow. And so, I mean, she actually beat me to that one. Um, um, but yeah, we've been pretty, we've been pretty, um, on par with that, but yeah, my, my views have changed so much and it, and I've said this before, in some ways I feel very envious of, I don't know if envy is the right word, you know, spirit of envy is a strong one, right. But of people who were not raised in the church and they, they just kind of come into the truth movement and they realize that Yahuwah is true and the Bible is true. And they just, they, they, they're able to, I've noticed from them that they're able to absorb truth uh, at, a, at a more accelerated rate than people who were raised in the church. Um, you know, I, I've, I'm a pastor's kid, parsonage, right? Um, I know tons of pastors, you know, they all went to, you know, family went to seminary, read Greek, all this kind of stuff, very indoctrinated. And I had to really push through a lot of indoctrination. A lot of you guys here, but um, I had to push through a lot of indoctrination to get to the point now where I'm like, uh, pre-existence, feminine, Ruach HaKodesh, you know, Trini Trinity is a no-go, you know, all these things, right? Uh, the earth is old, flat earth, all this kind of stuff. And now all my, my seminary, you know, family and upbringing, they're looking at me going like, you've lost it, Noel. You've, you've, you've gone off the deep end, right? But um, a lot of people are able to get to this point a lot easier if they're just not indoctrinated. And it's strong. I mean, it's really, really strong in the church, the indoctrination. <laughs>